welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Well, good to be back uh, up here to be able to preach and share on occasion. Um, my name is Greg Ogden. I'm a member of this congregation, retired as a pastor about seven years ago and been, have been here ever since. And I get this to do this on occasion, so it's wonderful to be a, a part of this second service this morning. I want to build on a sermon that Dorothy preached a few weeks back on prayer, and that's what the subject of this focus is this morning. It's been observed that the only particular instruction that the disciples asked from Jesus was about prayer. That's interesting. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, they asked him other things. James and John asked to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus when he came into the kingdom. But the instruction that they wanted to receive, that they directly asked him about, was about prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. We'll look at that in our text out of Luke 11 this morning. But I find that really comforting, because I would imagine for most of us, prayer is that thing that we wrestle with. And maybe they were looking for that golden key to unlock the mysteries of prayer that Jesus would teach them. Maybe you can identify with what this person said about prayer. Ever get the feeling that prayer is a violin solo and you're wearing mittens? Feel that way? I can can identify with that. In our evangelical tradition, uh, we urge people to have a daily quiet time or a daily devotional time, whatever label you want to put on that. And usually we are instructed by that that we should have a few things that go on in that daily quiet time. I, I think of it as a kind of personal rendezvous with Jesus, kind of a secreting away to be my time with him. I do it in my family room and close the door, so that's my secret spot. But usually we talk about at least three things uh, that we should do within our quiet time. First thing is certainly daily Bible reading, a time to hear from God, a time of prayer to speak uh, with God. Maybe some of you are actually uh, keeping a journal, writing down thoughts. I know I keep a journal online in a, in a uh, program called Day One. Not every day, but uh, fairly regularly. Sometimes I use a devotional book, and I wanted to put that up on the screen. Uh, the one that you see there, Union with Christ, from Rankin Wilburn, a pastor from L.A. area. He owes me a lot of money uh, because of all the times I have promoted this book in the recent times. So I'll call him and get my royalty payment uh, from him. But this is a wonderful text to bring you in to the heart of God and what it means to be in Christ and have Christ in you, union with Christ, and to have that uh, love relationship. If you use that book, you will be blessed um, by it. But when it comes to prayer, I'm one of those who feel like kind of I'm wearing mittens with that violin solo. And maybe some of you feel that way as well. Um, you sit down to pray, I get, try to get quiet, Try to have some solitude, and then all there's these intruding thoughts that come in. The to-do list pops up. If you're a salesman, you're starting to practice your sales pitch and who it is you're going to be with that day. Uh, So the affairs of the day kind of encroach because silence and solitude is not a part of our life. It's not something we urge to have. We are busy with noise all the time, and when we get quiet, Other things come in and take over. But these practical considerations can also be interrupted by uh, more serious doubts that we might have uh, in prayer. Ever sit down to pray and you're thinking, am I just talking to myself here? Did the prayers get beyond the ceiling? 
Is there someone on the other end of the line that I'm really talking to? This is the question that was raised in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is said in a Russian gulag. There's a Baptist Christian by the name of Oloshka who encourages his fellow prisoner, look here, Ivan Denisovich, your soul wants to pray to God, so why don't you let it have its way? And Ivan responds, I'll tell you why, Oloshka, because all these prayers are like complaints we send to the higher-ups. They either don't get there or they're marked rejected. Ever feel that way about prayer? Well, our investigation this morning is going to take us into the very heart of the character of the one who is on the receiving end of our prayers. Unless we can have confidence that there is a God whose desire is to hear us and respond and provide good for us, then prayer will be a very difficult thing. So the character of God who elicits trust and confidence is the focus of our attention this morning. So I want us to turn to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Your pew Bibles, uh, that's on page 869. And this passage of Scripture really comes in three sections. Uh, The first section is on Jesus' response to, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives us a kind of a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer, verses 1 through 4. And then what I'm going to zero in in on are the next two sections of this this Scripture. One is a a parable or a story that Jesus tells uh, about prayer in verses 5 through 8, which I think we get wrong. And then there's a poem uh, that begins with, ask and it shall be given to you, seek and you shall find, knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. And I think the teaching here is that we are to persist in prayer, sure, but because there's a generous and faithful God to whom we pray. That's why we can persist in prayer. So let me read Luke 11, 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And then verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells us a story. He said to them, which of you has a friend, would go to him at midnight and say to his friend, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. The children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, or because of his uh, persistence, boldness, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. And then the poem. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, thank you, Jesus, for calling us evil, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So as we delve into this text, let me say right up front, I think we have misplaced the emphasis on this text because we are blind to the cultural context in which Jesus speaks this message. We have made the story about the caller at midnight and the poem about asking, seeking, and knocking, about persistence in prayer when the emphasis is really on the character of the God to whom we pray. And I'll hopefully unfold that to you this morning. 
Uh, as we look at the cultural context, I'm drawing upon a theologian, second-generation missionary to the Middle East by the name of Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who gives us insights around the culture of this particular passage that will, frankly, entirely transform your understanding of what's going on here in the text. So let's start with verses 5 through 8 and look at this story uh, that we call the story at the friend at midnight. And what's our usual interpretation of the story? What is the, the usual reading? So here's, I think, what we usually think Jesus is saying. A man receives an unexpected late night guest. He realizes that he's out of bread, so he goes to his unwilling friend, who's rather annoyed and irritated that he would be awakened uh, because he's put his children to bed and locked the door for the evening. But because of the impudence, persistence, the boldness, the sleeper is prevailed upon. He relents and finally gets out of bed to meet the need of his friend. In other words, the story is about the caller who we'll, we'll assume uh, keeps on knocking, keeps on pounding, and finally the annoyed friend gets up and gives whatever he needs. So what's the lesson here? To pray is to be persistent. And if you thought that was the point of the story, you would be wrong. <laughs> we have come to the conclusion because we are blind to the cultural setting in which Jesus speaks this message. We are 2,000 years removed, but not that far removed from the Middle East. When you go into scripture, you are entering another culture, another time, another, another geography. And if you don't know the music that's going around the culture here, which we don't because we're tone deaf to the music, we just impose our 20th century, 21st century, independent, individualistic Americanism on this text. And I want to bring to you, you know, the context of which this whole thing is in. So let me bring, bring you back through the text, not from the angle of the caller, uh, but the friend whom I will call the sleeper. So we got the caller and the sleeper. Uh, and you will see, and this is an entirely different light. So Jesus introduces us to here the first of two rhetorical questions that he will ask in the text. What, what's a rhetorical question? Can you give me an answer? A rhetorical question is a question that has the answer built into the question, right? So here's what Jesus said. You didn't take your modern-day English classes. Okay, which of you, verse 5, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus is saying to his disciples, can you imagine going to a neighbor friend with such a simple request as needing three loaves of bread and getting such a response? And the disciples would say, what? No, we could not imagine getting that kind of response. Why would they say that? Because of the cultural context which we do not see. So let me kind of delve us into this Middle Eastern culture of hospitality that is about 180 degrees out of phase with the way we live here in this, this world, okay? The first thing we will note is having a visitor arrive at midnight was not unusual in those days. Uh, people would not travel during the day because of the heat of the day and arriving at midnight because of the cool of the night would be fairly common to have happen. But there's a formulaic way assumed in this text the way hospitality is, is offered. No matter the time of day somebody arrives, the guest must be served by the host, 
and the guest, whether hungry or not, must eat. And you must eat as much as the, the host puts in front of you during that time. I, I married into a Chinese family. I know what this is like. You go to the Chinese family where my mother-in-law cooked a meal, eat. Eat some more. Oh, you don't like my cooking. Um, no, you keep on eating. So they must eat. But the real controlling cultural difference here that assumes the, the difference in terms of this text is that the guest is not the, the guest of an individual, but is the guest of the community. We live in an individualistic culture. If I get to have a visitor come to my home, which I did a few weeks ago and spend a few days, I don't have any expectation of you that you should help entertain my guest. That's my responsibility. I don't want to impose that upon you. But in the Middle East, if there's a visitor that comes to a community, comes to a village, that guest is not the guest of the individual, but of the community. And that makes all the difference here. It's the community that's responsible for the entertainment of the visitor, not just the individual. So the host, going to his sleeping friend, even at midnight, is simply asking him to fulfill his obligation to the community, which he would understand would be the case. So the whole story is predicated on the fact that it would be unthinkable that the sleeper would refuse such a simple request. All I'm asking you is for three loaves of bread. That's nothing. What were loaves of bread in those days? That were your eating utensil. It's your knife, fork, and spoon. You would sit down at a table, everybody would have a little loaf of bread in front of them, they'd take off a piece of bread, they would dip it into the common dish and eat the bread, consume it, take another piece of bread, put it into the eggplant dish, and consume it. That's just a basic necessity. So let me tell you a story of an experience of Middle Eastern hospitality that totally confirms this high value of hospitality. My wife and I, a number of years ago, had an opportunity to organize a mission trip to Turkey. And in Turkey, you have the sites where Paul's missionary journeys, the seven sites of, of Revelation, Book of Revelation, all located in modern Turkey. And as you know, uh, Turkey is a 98% Muslim country. And our, but our in-country host was a Campus Crusade missionary. He'd been there 13 years, spoke fluent Turkish. Uh, Campus Crusade is called Crew these days. But he had to have an in-country ruse so that he could be a missionary in Turkey. Did not have missionary written on his visa. Now, what did he have written on his visa? That he was a travel agent. And so he had to sponsor trips uh, on occasion. So we sponsored this trip. We had 40 of, of us from our church. We got into this luxury bus. And one afternoon, we had left Ephesus on the west coast of Turkey. We were heading up towards Ishmir. Ishmir is biblical Smyrna uh, on the way there. And this is towards the end of our trip. And Doug, who was kind of a zany, spontaneous guy, our missionary, says, ah, we're a little bit early on our time. You know, we got some time to burn here. So he says, I've got an idea, brainstorm. I'm going to ask the bus driver to pull off at the next off-ramp that goes to a local village. This would be unannounced. I don't know of this territory. I'm just going to pick the first one. I'm going to drive into the village Go into the town square. I'm going to let you off the bus. You have 45 minutes to scatter into the village. I want to see how many of you are invited into people's homes for fresh bread, for tea, for olives. So we go down the road. Are we on this trip? There we go. Uh, There's the bus. 
Okay, so we're going down the road, the dust is being stirred up, children are chasing us down the road because this is the biggest thing that's happened in this village for who knows how long. And we come across some sheep, and the, the shepherd has to move the sheep off the road so we can get there. We pull into the town square, and uh, there's the children there, and now, let's go back to the previous one, uh, the slide. You can see the men in, in the back on the left side of the screen. Um, so they're there, you know, drinking coffee, playing their games in the afternoon. And so we're gathered there. So Lily and I take off into the village. Now kids follow us, and we come across the school. And Lily was an elementary school principal at the time, so we were interested in getting inside the classroom and seeing the school. One of the boys says, well, I can get the keys. So he runs off and gets the keys to go into the school. We see around, look around the classroom. Um, there's my wife and that little boy that led us into the school. And then it's off to the mosque, which was close by, very visible. Uh, we can see, and then we walk into the mosque, and there's the village chief elder there, probably was the imam as well. And he goes through these pantomimes, charades, trying to explain to us the symbols of what, are in, in what is in the mosque. Uh, obviously, we didn't speak each other's language. So we're checking our watches, 45 minutes, got to get back to the, to the bus. And we gather outside the bus, and fully one-third of our people have been invited into homes for tea and bread and olives. They're abuzz with the stories. And as we're getting on the bus, the village elder says to the bus driver, don't let them on the bus. We've already arranged for them to spend the night in our homes. Are you stunned? Now, how do I know that that was being said? Because our Turkish missionary is translating in real time what is being said and the conversation is going on. And he was stunned that they would open their arms to us like that. So, of course, we had a schedule to keep. We're from the United States. We had to get to our hotel the next night, you know, that's what we do. We have a place to go. So we did not spend the night. Now, can you imagine any greater contrast to our culture than what I just described to you? Across the street are the stalls for tour buses. They come up here all the time. So our tour bus comes up with 40 Middle Easterners in it. And the guide on the bus says, okay, you have 45 minutes to scatter into the community in Carmel <laughs> to see how many of you will be invited into homes. Let the tension of that set in for a moment. What do you think the response would be? Would anybody get into a home? Not a chance. What would happen? The police would be called. Yeah, that's right. We got these strangers wandering in our community. Wow. That made me start thinking about what's the nature of community even within the Christian community here? What's our openness to each other? About a month ago or so, we had a lot of rain. Trees were down. Power was out in Carmel, Pebble Beach, some five or six days for some people. And Lily and I got messages that people were out of their houses into hotels. We texted a friend and said, hey, we've got a spare room. Come and stay with us. We got the text back. Oh, we're already in a hotel. Our first response is not <laughs> uh, to rely upon each other, but to rely upon ourselves. We have the resources. 
I don't want to burden anybody else. And so in our self-reliance, we lose a sense of community, we lose a sense of our connectedness with helping each other you know, in this process. So you can see that this change in things. Now, one of the ways that we know we have real familiarity with each other, you ever heard of refrigerator rights? You know, that phrase, do people have refrigerator rights in your home? What's a refrigerator rights? Somebody could just go up and open a refrigerator and take whatever they want out of it. Uh, most of us don't have people in our lives that have refrigerator rights, except for our family in that way. So what would it be like to have that sense of community? So is it any wonder that we miss the irony of Jesus' story here? He says, can you imagine having a friend and going to him with a sacred request to help you entertain your guest? And he offers you a silly excuse about sleeping children and locked doors. Of course you cannot imagine that. Because it would never happen in that culture. So the story is not about persistence. But you, you say to me, well, what about verse 8? Verse 8 seems to be all about persistence. Doesn't this verse mean that Jesus seems to indicate that it's the caller's persistence or boldness that is the reason that the sleeper finally but reluctantly does what he's asked to do? So let me read the New International Version of the scripture here because we've got a lot of he's and him's in this verse and which, what is referred to in the he's and him. So the traditional reading of this would go like this. I tell you, though he the sleeper will not get up and give him the caller the bread because he, the sleeper, is a friend, yet because of the man's, the caller's, boldness, he, the sleeper, will get up and give him the caller as much as he, the caller, needs. That's why we usually interpret this, this text. Now, with the light of the hospitality culture, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, that, that would be the way you would interpret it. So I think the key word here in this text is the word boldness. You see, I have highlighted that. One, what does that word boldness mean? And secondly, to whom does it refer? And I want to make the case that that word boldness actually is the word for shamelessness. That's the primary way that that word is used. And it doesn't refer to the caller, but it refers to the sleeper. So here's a new interpretation of this. I tell you that though he, the sleeper, will get up and give him the collar, um, get up and give him the collar, the bread, because he, the sleeper, is a friend, yet because of the man, the sleeper's shamelessness or desire to avoid shame, the sleeper will get up and give him the collar as much as he needs. Notice I've italicized as much as he needs. The culture in which this message is given is the honor shame culture. You will do as much as you possibly can do to avoid being called shameless or being somebody without shame. Or on the positive side, you will uphold the honor of the, of the community, honor and shame. And so in this context, it really is all about uh, the sleeper uh, honoring the commitment to the community or avoiding the shame. Because the worst thing you could have said about the sleeper was, didn't give the very basic thing that was necessary. Now, what a stingy guy this is. He shouldn't even be a part of our community. We excommunicate him uh, for this kind, of, this kind of behavior. So we look at this and we see that the sleeper is really an embodiment 
of the honor of God. So what's the, what's the lesson here of these four, four verses? That God wants to teach us, Lord, teach us to pray. That this story is about persistence in prayer, yes, but about the integrity of the one to whom we pray. Jesus understands that we cannot pray unless we have full confidence in the one to whom we pray. So this parable is about the character of God. Or as I like to say, every time we pray, God's honor is at stake. That's what's happening here in in this text. So prayer is about God having a reputation to uphold. He swears by himself that he will be faithful to us. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Because he, God, could not swear by anyone greater, God swore by himself. So God is a promise maker and a promise keeper who will never violate his own word. There's a dramatic story that's told in Genesis chapter 15. And God has come to Abraham and God said to Abraham, Abraham, even though you have no heir, uh, you will be the father of nations and you will have a land to possess. And it says of Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But immediately after that, uh, Abraham asked, well, how will I know that I will take possession of a land? How will I know? Give me some confirmation, God. Yes, I have faith, but... Give me some evidence of this. And there's this dramatic scene that unfolds in Genesis chapter 15 where Abraham is told to set up two altars, you know, take a, a, a cow and a goat and a ram and cut them in two and put the halves on each one of these two altars. And then Abraham falls into a deep sleep and in this deep sleep he sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch passing between these altars, obviously representing the presence of God, God's commitment to his covenant to Abraham. And what's the message here? The message is from from God, if I do not keep my promise to you, Abraham, may I cut myself in two just as these animals are torn apart. May the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals if I do not keep my word. And I think there's this kind of covenant that is a part of what is being stated here in our text this morning. The point of Jesus' story is that the sleeper is a person of faithful integrity and will fulfill the cultural expectations of generosity. This is the God to whom we pray. So that's part one. Part two is the poem in verses nine through 13. And we pick up the poem, uh, verse nine, it says, so Jesus says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, he who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, the door will be open. Now, in the original structure here in the Greek language, uh, the imperative here is in the, in the present tense. So you could uh, translate this, ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking, as if persistence was the focus of the story. But let's look at it in another way. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. Yes, we should ask, seek, and knock, because we're in relationship with God. But the point here is, there's an assurance of response of the one that we are seeking, knocking, and asking. And Jesus reaffirms that as we go into 
verses 11 through 13. Jesus has told us that the identity of the sleeper is a generous sleeper by revealing to us that his primary identity is God as Father. Prayer is all about a Father who wants to give the best possible gifts to us. And so we read in verse 11, second rhetorical question, arguing from the lesser to the greater. Which of you fathers, if, you have a, ask, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Rhetorical question. Of course, a father, even an evil father, as he goes on to say here, is going to do what's best for his children, not what, what is harmful. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we as parents love our children so dearly, we're going to give them gifts for their good, not for their harm. How much more will the Father give us good gifts to us? And what is that good gift that he wants to give us? How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Father wants to give us the greatest gift we could ever possibly receive just for the asking. And what's that greatest gift? The greatest gift that God could ever give us is more of himself. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus in our life. Someone has described the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity. <laughs> I like that. Why? Because he never focuses attention on himself. He focuses attention on Jesus. And the Holy Spirit brings the presence of Jesus to come to live within us. That's why the greatest gift he could ever give us is more of himself. And this leads us, to, I think, to the greatest privilege of the Christian life, which is through the indwelling presence of Jesus' spirit, we become the adopted children of God. G.I.A. Packer puts it like this. He says, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. This is what the Apostle Paul says to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, that the work of the Spirit is to confirm in our spirits that we are the children of God, to speak that message to our hearts. This is the way Paul puts it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The role of the Spirit is to confirm in our hearts that we are his beloved. That's why this is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Now I'm gonna ask for indulgence to end on a very personal way this morning. Because whenever I speak about the whole issue of what it means to be adopted son and daughter of God, it gets right to the core of my own personal journey of faith. The truth that I am God's adopted son and secure in the Father's love eluded me for much of my adult life. For greater or lesser degrees, at times, I was riddled with fear and anxiety in my life. Sometimes it was intense, sometimes it was quiet, but it really came to a head when my whole future was up in the air in terms of where my pastoral life would go. And there was this clutch in my stomach every day when I woke up, 
as much as I tried to get my head to communicate to my heart that I knew that God loves me, my heart was speaking the message otherwise, that I wasn't believing that. In fact, I was reading a chapter out of J.I. Packer's book on the love of God. He has a phrase, love is the complete truth about God so far as Christians are concerned. I think I read that paragraph every day for three months. And every day for three months, there was no breakthrough in my own spirit. You know, it's very embarrassing to be a pastor and not trust God. Would you want that kind of pastor? (laughs) Well, that was where I was at that point. And I finally had to go before God and some friends and admit that I was powerless over this anxiety. An alcoholic uh, in the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous states this, and I put my name in here. I have admitted that my life is powerless over anxiety and that my life has become unmanageable. So I went to a couple friends who had an inner healing prayer ministry. I poured it all out to them, told them the story, and then we went to a time of prayer. And in in healing prayer, you try to allow Jesus to enter into your mind and and your heart and your spirit and to show you what's going on. And all of a sudden, and I'm not a visualizer, I had this visualization of the transfigured Jesus. You know, Mount of Transfiguration, glistening white, glowing. And there he was. I couldn't see his face, as you can imagine. But there he had his arms out like this. He had a young boy in his arms. I knew that young boy was me. Kind of like the rescued lamb (laughs) that he was holding out. And then all of a sudden in this picture, I saw Jesus throw his head back in laughter and spin around three times with great joy over this child in his arms. It was something I knew I could not manufacture, that this is a gift that God was giving me. Now, I did not have, frankly, a big emotional moment that moment. But I had this deep assurance that what was transpiring there would yield deep healing in my life and be able to embrace that I was an adopted child of God. Now, thankfully, I've been perfect ever since. (laughs) No. (laughs) But substantially healed, it comes back on occasion in terms of that that anxiety uh, in my life. And so Jesus wants to speak into that or any other issue uh, in our life. That happened to be mine. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes when we as his children entrust ourselves to God as our loving Father. So let me close with uh, this image this morning. Richard Foster in his book, Prayer, Your Heart's True Home, begins with a a little story, which I think kind of frames the book. I do highly recommend that one as well. Uh, So he tells the story of a friend of his who's at a shopping mall with his two-year-old child. And this two-year-old child is particularly rambunctious this day. You know, he's, he's fussing and fuming and cantankerous and anything he tries, he's at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do because nothing's working. And finally, he just picks his child up and holds him close and then begins to sing to him. He makes up words and phrases, off key, no, they don't rhyme. I love you. I'm so glad you're my boy. You make me happy. I like the way you laugh. And he continued to singing off key like this and watched this child kind of slowly just settle in and become quiet. 
And after finished shopping, he was putting his child in the car seat. And his little boy looked up to him and said, sing it to me again, Daddy. Sing it to me again. That's what we need to say to our father. Tell me again, Daddy. Tell me again. (laughs) Sing it to me again. I know I need to keep hearing it myself because I slip off in terms of what that message is to us. So I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that sleeper will get up and give whatever we need because of his honor and integrity of who he is. And we can ask because it will be given. Seek because you will find. Knock because the door will be opened. And then we can ask for the Holy Spirit, the greatest gift that God can give us, his very own presence as a dwelling place in our own being, in our own spirit. What I'm trying to say is, This is the foundation for prayer. There's one at the other end of the line that we have absolute confidence in, in our lives. Jesus is teaching us with a simplicity of heart, we can become like children, allow him to gather us up in his arms, and let him sing that song to us again. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us, because each one of us has something It seems to get in the way of that belief and confidence in your embrace of us. Thank you for these story that Jesus tells, for the poem that he tells, particularly about Jesus introducing us to his Father, who wants to give us the greatest gift that we can possibly have, your indwelling presence in us. And I pray that for each of us that we would open our hearts and simply ask, because that's what Jesus says. Ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ask for the gift of his presence. Jesus' presence. This we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website, at www.carmelprez.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.